Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Environmental Studies channel of the New Books Network's podcast. I'm Padmapriya Vidya Govindarajan, and I'm thrilled to host Dr. Rafiko Ruiz today to chat about his new book, Slow Disturbance, Infrastructural Mediation on the Settler Colonial Resource Frontier, published in 2021 by Duke University Press. Rafiko Ruiz is the Associate Director at the Canadian Centre for Architecture, and in addition to this book, he has, uh, he has co-edited Saturation and Elemental Politics. His research examines the relationships between architecture, infrastructure, and the environment across the circumpolar world. Slow Disturbance documents and analyzes the different media that were critical to the operation of the, Green, of the Grenfell mission that resulted in the extensive construction of medical infrastructure through the, uh, to the coast of northern Newfoundland and Rabrador. The text plays close attention to the processes and operations of this infrastructure build-out through a combination of artifacts produced by the mission and interviews with people who had relationships with the mission. In doing so, the book studies the North Atlantic settler colonialism as a mediating project through the infrastructure it relies on and the experience of the emergent resource frontier. To this end, Each chapter of the book looks at how an infrastructural zone came to be a part of the mission's reform process. I'm delighted to have you here with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for the invitation, Padma. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. Um, So I like to begin by asking authors how they imagine their audience to be, um, especially since uh, environmental studies is an interdisciplinary project to begin with, just like your text. Um, Maybe you could start by tracing the significance of what you call the minor history of the Grenfell mission. So who did you intend for this story to speak to? And what does it mean for you to locate your intervention within environmental media studies? Like what are your stakes within that? Yeah. um, Well, as you know, I guess as someone immersed in a PhD project, and this was where this book originated for myself as well, um, it's sometimes hard to project that far into the future. <laughs> and you hope to have a kind of readership and a public for your work. And um, 
in my case, that, that certainly came in a way, it came a bit later. And as you'll discover yourself in a couple of years, uh, when you, you do the work of transforming dissertation into a monograph, um, it really, it accelerates, I would say, a kind of process of public accountability. And um, for myself, this really started to revolve around a broader, um, broader efforts at uh, documenting, uh, critiquing, capturing in a way um, settler infrastructural interventions and experiences within the larger project of settler colonialism, in my case, in what's now Canada, um, and trying to think about how embedded within that there could be a kind of method uh, available to uh, media studies scholars, uh, scholars in post-colonial studies and in indigenous studies, a kind of way of apprehending how settler experiences and infrastructures have come into being sort of in tandem, um, come into being alongside one another and through one another. And so for me, um, that was really, you know, I started out working on this actually like super odd research project on an evangelical Protestant medical mission from the late 19th century um, on the margins, operating what, on what was then the sort of margins of the British Empire. Um, and it was, a, it was an effort to really try to document, um, to document what, as you said, Stoller calls a kind of minor history, uh, but that holds, holds in itself um, a story around infrastructural mediation. So the, the lives and affects that through the settler colonial project, infrastructure, the building of infrastructure can make apparent. So for me, in terms of the broader public, who I was hoping to be invited in through this book, it was really, without maybe with like necessarily a public in mind, it was more um, thinking about a kind of a kind of experience of settler accountability, uh, maybe particularly again within my own settler context of Canada, um, and trying to think about how. Um, by telling what I describe as these kind of infrastructural stories through the book, um, settlers could come to an understanding of how they benefit from very long and often concealed practices, processes, and really like landscapes of dispossession, everyday landscapes. And so it was really trying to come... <clears throat> what I've come to actually like sort of more think about in retrospect after writing the book and uh, engaging with it in other for forums is really thinking about it as participating in a broader yeah, sort of societal shift towards settler accountability as a kind of experience that needs to be um, maybe more centered and valued and given importance by settlers um, on who benefit from and live on indigenous lands in different contexts. So, so yeah, that was a bit what I've come to see, I guess, as a, as a sort of broad public for this book. But I hope in terms of um, the second part of your question around environmental media studies in particular, and it's really exciting to see so much compelling work emerging out of this. It's really kind of nascent subfield in a lot of ways. And um yeah, your, your own position, positioning your own work within that subfield, 
um, it really, um, my hope was really to think about um, a kind of relational model for, uh, for media studies and how uh, mediation is such a lively process and attending to how we can track different phenomena across, across these processes of mediation, you know, extending to non-human life worlds is really, is really I think, what's maybe at the, the core of the most exciting work in environmental media studies today. So in your case, the monsoon. Um, and really trying, yeah, trying to understand how um, thinking, you know, of course, very broadly around definitions of media, practices of communication, and then what sort of through those um, different relational dynamics makes uh, for a much wider circle of, as I said earlier, accountability, um, notions of reciprocity, solidarity, and how these can all really, in a sense, um, yeah, become part of the discursive, analytical, and in a way sort of research domain of environmental media studies. So I think that was a bit, um, yeah, that was a bit the ambition of situating this book within that, within that um, subfield, but also a sort of larger, larger uh, research formation, I guess you could say. Okay, yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. And as you as you're indicating, it's a very reflective process, um, writing this book and also engaging with this process of accountability and sector accountability. And I'm glad you brought up mediation because that was going to be my next question. So you say in your book that you offer a situated history of infrastructural mediation. So for our listeners, would you say uh, what would you say? Uh, about what mediation means to you here. You talk about infrastructural mediation, you talk about living mediation. Specifically, how do you analyze mediation in relation to environmental extraction while also thinking of the properties of conventional media technologies? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, of course, <clears throat> there's, you know, you look up mediation in the OED, <laughs> you know, there's this sort of first layer non-media studies definition, which is, of course, you know, more grounded in a kind of um, process of negotiation, sort of mediation between two parties, which, which isn't, of, of course, the, the sense that, you know, you, you and I understand when we're thinking about um, how a resource frontier comes into being through, you know, what I call infrastructural mediation. Um, and um, so for me, and I, and I, it's a orientation and understanding uh, of mediation that I share with scholars like Sarah Kember and Joanna Zolinska, who really, um, yeah, really influential for my, my approach to building this notion of infrastructural mediation, especially through their notion of living mediation is, um, and that, so in their sense of the term, they really see it as like uh, becoming with the world. Uh, so it's in very broad terms, like how through uh, being in the world and through different technologies, we become with the world through mediation. For me, uh, where I center it more so uh, through this concept of infrastructural mediation is to understand how in this particular, and this is why it's situated, in this particular settler colonial project in what was then the British colony of Newfoundland, 
the building of infrastructure itself um, participated in the reform of settler fisher folk lives. So this was um, yeah, largely uh, British uh, settlers, French as well to some extent, who established themselves on the island of Newfoundland um, dating back to the 15th century. And so by you know the late 19th century, which is when my story starts, and Wilfred Grenfell's British uh, medical doctor and evangelical Protestant missionary <clears throat> who was sent by the Royal National Mission to deep sea fishermen to Newfoundland to quote unquote minister to uh, uh, this population that was referred to as the toilers of the deep and sort of heroicized in many ways as providing fish uh, to the to the empire. Um, so in in a lot of ways, the work that the Grenfell and the Grenfell mission, the mission he would eventually found would do was really around trying to account for um, for the, the very lives themselves of settler folk, settler fisher folks and how they could be perpetuated. So building infrastructure and participating and designing this process of infrastructural mediation was thinking about how you could attend to and support fisher folk lives and experiences by building hospitals, airstrips, nursing stations, schools, uh, you know, light industries, all these sorts of um, infrastructures that could that could support the larger settler colonial project. And in many ways, and in uh, probably in environmental media studies in particular, you know, the expansion of uh, the media concept, largely through John Durham Peters, um, very prominent. Media studies scholar uh, now based at Yale. It was really an attempt to account for um, ways of thinking about the resource frontier itself as a kind of medium where you could make out um, make out these dynamics by tracing um, these histories of uh, settler dispossession through the sort of traces left on the land itself. So these are the architectures, infrastructures that settlers built. And that, um, you know, really, in a way, really permeate and constitute our present moment. So infrastructural mediation, the, the concept of mediation itself is a way of navigating, um, of navigating where we are in a way in the, in the present and how settler accountability um, can or needs, you know, in the, at its best in a way, needs to actually read through uh, into the past uh, through these settler infrastructures in order to make out where they come from, why, who built them, who benefits from them, et cetera, and trying, and actually it's the, it's the concept, it's the process of mediation itself uh, that lets us, lets us see that it's a sort of way of navigating those dynamics. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, so then can we talk a little bit more about what you're characterizing as the emergent research frontier and what that means methodologically for other scholars who wish to engage in similar processes? So my question on method is sort of, how are you holding together and doing so much in this context? On the one hand, you're tracing the operation of um, infrastructural arrangements. You're engaging with different temporal registers in this process. Um, and your larger goal is to study settler colonialism, which as, you're say, uh, as you say, drawing on Wolf, um, is a structure and not an event. So what does it mean methodologically to hold all these things together and study an emergent research frontier? What is your intervention there? 
Yeah, that's an excellent question, Padma. Um, and it's something, you know, I've, I've struggled with in building the book. Because <laughs> in a lot of ways, like, uh, and I'm curious maybe to hear your, your thoughts on it, you know, um, I really wanted the medium of the book itself to kind of register as part of the method. <laughs> uh, so it's not, it doesn't have it like an entirely unconventional structure, I would say, the book. But um, in, a, in a sense, um, especially some of these sort of, I guess you could think of them in the, as a kind of genre of reportage, these, the way it was sections that really give over certain sections of the book to kind of um, firsthand accounts by um, current residents of some of the small towns where the Grenfell Mission operated, St. Anthony, which was the headquarters primarily, which is in what's now present-day uh, northern Newfoundland, the province of Newfoundland and Labrador in Canada. And um, these sections, the way it was sections, um, yeah, are, are a form of reportage in the sense that there are interviews that I conducted with residents now largely like in their 70s and 80s who experienced firsthand the Grenfell Mission. So the Grenfell Mission operated into the 1980s um, in these communities and is still like very much present, um, obviously through things like there's the Grenfell Museum in an interpretation center in St. Anthony. Uh, there are important sort of tourist sites that are part of the local tourist economy. But it was actually more in this on the sort of more affective side of the of the register that I was interested in in understanding how these legacies of um, sort of like self help of a kind of community based uh, cooperative financial system that the mission implemented and this was dating back to sort of the early twentieth century how these were still present in the community in different ways. And so one way of doing that was, um, was to understand how settler infrastructure building, in a way, what it ultimately, in some ways, gives rise to and creates in this very long term, thinking about over a century, is the, the sort of experiences of, of a kind of settler affect located in place and in homes, um, and in what is ultimately like a very long and drawn out process of, of dispossession of indigenous peoples who in, inhabited these lands originally. And so that's a sort of roundabout way of getting um, to your question around the, the book itself as establishing a kind of experience of, um, of what settler infrastructure is and what it does. So the, of course it walks you, each chapter is dedicated to kind of different infrastructural project, um, whether it be the hospital cooperative system, this experimental aerial surveying technique called oblique aerial photography, or um, the production of documentary films and, fi and um, fiction films um, that the, the mission participated in. And in some ways, um, I really, yeah, I, was, I had the ambition of the, the book itself trying to bring readers along through these four different experiences of infrastructure, but then also um, coming up against and uh, opening for interpretation the voices of um, present-day settlers 
even if they might not necessarily self-describe in that way, uh, in these communities and trying to understand um, understand how you can, um, yeah, you can under, you can experience infrastructural mediation in the present through the voices of these community members. So it, uh, to me, that's, if, if I'm going back to like these early cards, earlier conversation we had around notion of settler accountability, it's also, it's trying to open that, that pathway up maybe um, for, yeah, for people, um, settlers in particular, who need to learn more about what, you know, why they are where they are, what they benefit from and who, um, you know, who in a sense has um, paid the price for not being on those lands necessarily. Yeah, I completely see what you're saying, though, about the book being a part of your process, because I felt like as you were analyzing and, and offering these like uh, descriptions in the chapters, you were offering these images, these maps that one could trace along with you and along with your analysis. And that became a part of the reader's own process as well. Um, and so and I'm sure you've been asked this before. So um, hopefully I'm not putting you too much on the spot. But how did you make the decisions about what to retain and what to offer the reader um, as part of this journey? And what were the conversations that you decided to prioritize and are there conversations that you wish you'd had the space to have within this book? I mean, I think, um, sorry, I have, I have relentless Teams notifications, but they are, hopefully they aren't too loud for us. <laughs> that was just one that popped up. Um, it's closed, but somehow it still returns. Um, so I think, um, so really like one register that I worked hard on myself, like, again, this really began during my PhD work and, you know, we can, I'll describe it as field work, even if I really didn't, I don't necessarily think of it as such or think of it as a different kind of field work, but, um, it really began with like the photographic project that accompanied um, yeah, that accompanied this um, this larger uh, initiative. I mean, it was a way for me of um, of in a sense like creating. Um, and this in this, I was really inspired by the work of uh, Peter Van Wyck, who's a um, media studies scholar at Concordia University here in Montreal. And um, what he called in this book, The Highway of the Atom, uh, sort of territorial archive. Um, so if you go out on the land and think about it as uh, the product of long-term processes initiated by settler colonialism, what do you see and how do you capture it in a sense? And so a lot of the photographs that I took um, are really um, in a way... Um, uh, capturing these kind of like settler monuments um, to this process. And um, even, uh, and it's very intentional, even a lot of the archival material and like any missionary enterprise, you know, the Grenfell mission had a huge archival footprint. Um, the, the archival material that's reproduced in the book is similarly um, reproduced from the perspective of sort of like my singular eye embodied in a singular moment in the archive. So it isn't meant to be a kind of perfect 
reproduction at super high resolution, but rather it's meant to be a kind of imperfect record of where um, where these like trails, these infrastructural stories lead in the present. So they're kind of like, um, yeah, they're kind of, in a sense, artifacts themselves of trying to investigate where settler infrastructure, settler infrastructure building leads. Um, and so in a lot of ways, um, I obviously wish I could have included more photographs. <laughs> also color photographs would have been nice. Um, in, in some ways. And also, uh, if I'm going even further down that road, I mean, uh, I had the ambition of a, of a kind of different graphic quality, like a, just from a design perspective for the book itself. Now I would say in its present form, working with amazing graphic designers at Duke, but obviously with like many limitations that one might not have, I don't know, in more like an art book context or something else. Um, is this is, I would say, the kind of like compressed version of the book. And um, I would have uh, liked to, in a sense, give almost like equal weight or more weight to the photographs and to these artif archival artifacts by letting them, in a sense, like um, have a more communicative relationship one to the other across the actual pages of the book in some ways. And again, like I talked about the book itself as a kind of uh, experience of infrastructural mediation. Um, and I think that would have been, yeah, that would have been foregrounded if um, if it had been like a different format, a larger book, uh, a way of having like images speak to one another in, in, different, in a different arrangement. But then in terms of the conversations that I didn't have um, that could have been included in this book, um, I think, um, like to give you an example, I mean, I spent some time in Northwest River. So this is a small community outside of Happy Valley, Goose Bay, which is the largest town, small city in Labrador. And uh, across from Northwest River, which was uh, after St. Anthony, which is on the island of Newfoundland proper, um, Northwest River was a sort of base of operations for the Grenfell mission in Labrador. And even today, there are many, many uh, buildings that, um, that show um, these traces of the Grenfell mission's influence. Um, and yeah, of the, the way that they, they created these uh, communities and affected local life in a sense. Uh, and, but uh, um, across the river, it separates um, um, Northwest River from uh, Sheshashi. So Sheshashi is a, one of the largest Innu communities in Labrador. And uh, conversations I wish I'd had, it was partly, partly around time, but mainly around not feeling necessarily authorized or positioned to go into a community like Sheshashi and ask community leaders or others about their experiences or their uh, parents or grandparents' experiences of the Grenfell mission. And in a way, it was, you know, that that applies for many different contexts throughout the book, but it was a way of, I felt it as a kind of inherent limitation to thinking about tracing settler affects uh, through this process of infrastructural mediation. And so 
in a sense, sort of limiting myself to understanding the kind of settler life world, uh, not at the expense of uh, Indigenous life worlds and Indigenous voices, and in this case, Inu experiences of the mission, but as a way of creating, again, this maybe goes to the experience of the book as a kind of, um, yeah, a kind of register of that of that process of infrastructural mediation and what it leads to, but a way of, um, yeah, in, in contain, containing that life world, the settler life world, and having it be almost claustrophobic in a sense. Um, and of course, it would have been a very different a very different project had I had I included, um, yeah, the voices of. Uh, Inuit, Inu, or Mi'kmaq, or other Indigenous community members in the book. So that was something, that's something I've been thinking about more and more now, having it, you know, as a sort of contained narrative now, as a book does, you know, as it's fixed and <laughs> uh, is a kind of record of its own. So, yeah, that's something that I've thought uh, more and more about lately. Yeah, I feel like that's what happens when you, you know, release a book into the world. It feels like a final product, but it's so much more than what it can be. And I think, like you're saying, it's an important choice you made, um, that this is the story and this is the narrative you want to stay with. And it, it feels like it is honest to what you were saying about settler accountability and producing settler accountability there um, and, and have that be center stage. So I appreciate that and I, I feel it. Um, I think also it would have been a very cool project if you had been able to include like um, color photographs and had it be more interactive and stuff, maybe a future project. I don't know if that's, if that's possible. I can't imagine um, what the size or the quality of that book would be, but it sounds exciting for sure. Um, maybe then, uh, since we've spoken a lot about the human in your interface, but also drawing on, on your refrain of the fish came first, uh, I wonder if you could speak a little bit more uh, on the significance of the non-human in your analysis. And, and I hate to say human-non-human interactions as if there has to be a binary and that's how we understand it. Um, but, uh, but you know, uh, what does it mean to study the non-human um, and specifically your use of slowness here, um, drawing on Anna Singh's conceptualization of slowness there as well. Uh, on slow disturbance, but also when you bring this conversation in parts of the book, this conversation with uh, Rob Nixon's idea of slowness and slow violence. So how is it that you understand the non-human through this metaphor of slowness within your text? Um, yeah, one way that I've thought about the role of fish in this larger story is through the kind of shifting of temporal horizons that non-human phenomena open for us, I think, us as humans, <laughs> uh, who are like na very narrative creatures, right? And so, um, <clears throat> in I of course open the book thinking about fish as themselves, you know, leaving a kind of archaeological record, um, and uh, if through settler colonialism settler colonialism's effects, um, an indigenous group like the Beartuk, uh, who were uh, in many ways like the original uh, caretakers of the island of what's now Newfoundland. Um, and they were rendered extinct through the arrival of European settlers. You can think about um, the archeological record and a, a sort of extension of ancestral remains um, through um, 
that that in a sense make uh, non-human and human worlds cohabitate in different ways. You know, we're all <laughs> as species will eventually, you know, return to the earth in some in some ways and leave different kinds of records uh, that that communicate that can serve as media for future generations. So it's sort of reading reading our environments in that way, um, as you suggested, don't you know makes this boundary, this binary, human, non-human, um, start to be a bit blurrier and start to be, and starts to maybe show the productiveness of centering a process like mediation in thinking about how particular environments come into being and how extraction is um, a process that accelerates and renders often very violent um, phenomena across these different environments. Um, so the fish in in this story are really um, are really meant to, of course, uh, precede uh, like precede um, all human intervention <laughs> in this world. You know, the the colony of Newfoundland uh, at its very earliest was really treated as a kind of um, giant state so stage. Uh, or fishing vessel stage was really like a sort of uh, man-made structure, often made out of wood, that um, settler fisher folk would use to cure and dry uh, fish, primarily cod, in this uh, in this part of uh, the British Empire. And um, they were built as kind of like temporary structures, structures that could be dismantled quickly, um, that could be uh, made quickly and inexpensively. Um, so obviously not with like um, really durable or permanent materials. And so um, the island itself, by British law, uh, for several centuries, um, was really treated as a kind of fishing ground. So even the, the land, the land uh, um, settlers were in theory um, um, forbidden from building permanent structures on it. And so, um, and so in a sense, um, the, the very, um, the very reason they were there was merely to extract fish. So it was really like a kind of, um, like today, you know, you have these super, uh, long-distance fishing trawlers that go through um, different oceans around the world. And it, it's in a sense like that that sort of arc of extraction uh, that in this case was part of the larger British imperial project. Um, and so in the book, the fish are meant to be this kind of like or originary um, impetus to move towards building uh the building of the extractive frontier, the resource frontier. And um, it's really uh, significant and specific to uh, the experiences of settlement on the island of what's now Newfoundland, where in 1992, uh, due to, I mean, it's a bit not definitively proven in scientific record, but almost Certainly, uh, due to overfishing, uh, the government declared, the provincial government declared a cod moratorium. So this was like a, basically like a, a stop to all commercial fishing of cod, specifically 
um, on the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. And so really like that is described as a sort of collapse of the cod fishery. And so in some ways, this, um, this particular fish species is made out in the book as, um, as both the kind of like um, ambient condition, if you want to call it that, that brought settlers to the island of Newfoundland. And then through this process of slow disturbance, which is part of the larger process of um, becoming settled, you know, becoming, um, of building up and um, rendering long-term the extractive frontier. Um, so as a result, what becomes disturbed is of course, um, not only uh, obviously like uh, the original dispossession of indigenous peoples, but also the very environments themselves uh, sort of suffer from what I call in the book, this promise of extraction that is always sort of open-ended, always um, there to be fulfilled. Um, and so, yeah, the promise of extraction then creates and unfolds over time. Yeah. To get more to your question around the temporality of this, of this process, um, into into a sort of condition of disturbance and if, if for me and in the book non-human phenomena just so clearly operate at a distinct temporal scale and i think the disturbance um and now with global warming um it becomes you know i think part of the the problem is this kind of like event-based nature of you know accelerated uh, uh, weather events, let's say, and yet um, I think like a process like industrial scale extraction um, needs to be yeah needs to be read through the the very um, sometimes um, what can take centuries, but will ultimately because this you know this we could say you know the fisher the cod fishery at this in an imperial sense dates back to you know, the 15th century. So over, you know, five centuries, six centuries, where ultimately, you know, this disturbance leads, um, is this is then a sort of story of collapse. And so slow disturbance is trying to track how, yeah, uh, settler colonial project can, you can, you can figure out in a way how it contributes to that, to that story of collapse. Yeah. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I wonder, though, when you're talking about uh, infrastructural mediation of this this settler colonial frontier, you're also talking about um, the mission's role. When you talk about the mission's role in shaping financial systems, right? You're not just talking about infrastructure there. You're talking about cooperation and care as outcomes of this infrastructure of these infrastructural practices, but they are being channeled in service of settler colonialism. So there's an almost like ideological component there to these infrastructural worlds. So maybe you could speak a little bit to that as well. Definitely. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, I think, um, yeah, there is, and that's uh, out of the, I guess, four, the four treatments of settler infrastructure in the book, that is certainly, you could say the sort of most, immaterial maybe <laughs> and it's um it was um 
I mean, ultimately, you know, the introduction of a system of cooperative finance was in some ways like a, a way to ensure the longevity of settlement. You know, it was, it, it came about through like a kind of like crisis of um, what was called the truck system. So this was like a non-cash-based economy where settler fisher folk would trade their like a kind of barter system, trade their, often it was cod, uh, their um, dried cod to local merchant and in return receive goods uh, of various kinds to basically allow them to continue fishing for another season. And this cycle would continue. And often it was more of a debt-based cycle because their catch wouldn't quite cover the inflated costs of goods. And so ultimately it becomes a kind of form of indentured servitude because uh, there's no, um, yeah, there's no possibility of finding another buyer for your, for your goods. And so you're, yeah, you become, uh, reliant on uh, the single merchant who is a rep- representative of a larger merchant interest in that context. Um, and so it, at the base of it, and as um, yeah, another dimension in the book that I talk about was really the, when thinking about, in this case, evangelical, evangelical Protestant medical mission and their, you know, their definition of good works and what you know, religion itself could do in the in the world in a material sense was of course to like to just build (laughs) to build hospitals to build nursing stations and to actually care very directly for fisher folk bodies uh bodies that were in this moment in particular after several sort of failed seasons of the of the fishery um were in yeah were in pretty uh dire conditions and so um even though like the cooperative system was established as a way of gaining independence uh, relatively for the fishermen to have like direct to market access and was really um, in also inspired by the cooperative, uh, cooperative movement in Manchester. Uh, this was a little bit later in the 1920s and 1930s, like the... Uh, in comparison to when um, the cooperative system was introduced in Newfoundland, like in around 1905 or Southern Labrador, particularly in Red Bay. Um, it was really uh, in the, what I also like try to not try to not lose sight of even, and you're totally right. This was a kind of like immaterial form of infrastructural mediation was like creating uh, a system within which, they could, um, the fisher folk could sell fish direct to market, let's say. Even more so than the, you know, of course, the boats that they relied on, they ultimately had like a dedicated boat uh, that would t- bring their catch, um, was in a way this con- condition of the of settler fisher folk bodies themselves. So it, in some ways, like, this may be something I maybe even don't highlight um, strongly enough in the chapter, was really the, 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 the the disconnect of um, or the I don't know what the right word is, but like the experience for officials uh, from from the Royal National Mission Deep Sea Fishermen, but also just British government officials going through the colony and witnessing the poverty and the hardships 
and the the bodies themselves of white fisher folks and important that they were white important important that they were british and colonists and thinking about them as uh, you know a very racialized group that belongs and that is deserving of um, of care and so yeah i think it's um yeah it's a really really nice point that um uh, bodies, ships, um, the you know, cash ledgers are all part of a kind of infrastructural system. Um, but then it's the kind of, uh, I think, and this is where I find the work of Lauren Berlant so compelling, but I think she described it, describes it as kind of patterning of social form. And so how that how that is ultimately accomplished, this and again, maybe thinking about Sarah Kember and Joanna Zelenska's notion of living mediation is, and this is even applies, I think, in a historical register, is thinking about um, uh, yeah, the these kinds of um, everyday dynamics that were created by these systems and the ways they lived through them and settlers could navigate them. And that is yeah, that is directly implicating uh, something like the, well, one, the, the, this sort of um, truck system that then got transformed by and into the cooperative system that the Grenfell Mission introduced. So this is a kind of, yeah, there's a kind of liveliness that attending to these, um, these different processes lets you see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that might be the last of my questions on the book itself. So just to round out this episode, maybe you could tell us a little bit in the year since this book's been published, what projects have you been working on and what are your upcoming projects? Definitely. Um, so, of course, alongside it, uh, this book was published in May and then I believe in October, the Saturation Elemental Politics collection came out also with Duke. Uh, that was quoted with uh, Melody Jew who's a media studies scholar at UC Santa Barbara, who also has an amazing book. People who are listening to this want to check it out called Wild Blue Media. Uh, yeah. And, um, and so of course all of, and speaking of temporality, these, you know, these two projects are of course anchored a few years back in the past <laughs> as they take a little while to come, come into the world. Uh, but saturation is really amazing collaborative project to think through with Melody and to really, in some of the ways, uh, you know, it's thinking about quite maybe in a more theoretical vein, like thinking about, you know, the relational constitution of settler infrastructure, thinking about how phenomena um, open up different temporal horizons and blur this distinction between human and non-human binaries. Um, saturation, you know, we describe it as a kind of material heuristic and a way of um, tracking tracking phenomena that um, that um, uh, that how do we put it? I'm trying to remember. Essentially, that sort of like coexist in a similar environment, and we track um, through notion um, of phase change of uh, threshold and precipitate and really trying to see how phenomena uh, large some often through the effects of global warming but not only uh, need to be attended to across these different 
uh, states through which they transition. So it's really, yeah, trying to be attentive uh, to a kind of unfolding uh, in time and space, uh, sometimes accelerating, sometimes slowing down, uh, when you're trying to think about a kind of saturated situation. Um, and they're really exciting chapters in the book that touch on um, everything from like the oil barrel as a kind of unit of measurement that um, in uh, Jean-Claude and Christo's work, kind of commentary on the condition of saturation of oil in the or scarcity oil in the 1970s, and then going all the way through to um, a really excellent chapter on uh, the concept of enclosure and thinking about the ocean as a kind of saturated uh, commodity space. Um, this is Max Ritz's chapter uh, in the book. And so, yeah, saturation merged alongside slow disturbance, but um, yeah, something I've been working on for a long time, <laughs> uh, dating back to sort of PhD years, really like going maybe back to like 2010, is a book um, now called uh, Face State Earth, Ice at the Ends of Climate Change. And this is going to be a book on, uh, you know, if Slow Disturbance is a book about settler infrastructure stories, Face State Earth is a book about um, ice stories. And so what these are is thinking about, again, maybe through sort of narratives of disturbance, but in this case, what I call phase state earth. So this is thinking about now under the conditions of global warming and specifically through the phase state of ice. So like water in its solid form, how we've entered an era where the sort of predictability of the cycle of going through, in this case, the hydrological cycle, moving through conditions of uh, atmospheric gases, liquid water or sort of solid state ice that, that that has now been disrupted in a way. And so what the book tries to do is really think about, and that's the sort of subtitle of the book, ice at the ends of climate change and ends in this case are both um, are, I guess they're really like three things. Firstly, it's um, the sort of geographical poles, of course, uh, and the book attends to, and tries to create a kind of uh, what I call a kind of drift path theory. So following environmental phenomena, in this case, ice through its dissolution. Uh, and what are the, yeah, what's, um, what does it let us see when it comes to, of course, acceleration of carbon effects, um, the ethical responsibilities of what I call the carbon subject, which is lar largely, you know, Western, urban, and the sort of benefits of carbon, um, the carbon economy. And um, so when you follow this drift path, you know, where does it lead? Who does it implicate? Um, and um, so this, yeah, so it really it begins, the book opens at 66 degrees north latitudes and then travels in terms of its structure by degree by degree, uh, moving to 66 degrees south. Um, and the second sense of ends is also a kind of means-ends relationship. So like ice at the ends of climate change thinks about ice as a kind of subject uh, that has become um, 
uh, you know, subject to the conditions of global warming. And so giving ice a kind of agency when it comes to experiencing, um, experiencing warming. And uh, again, this in, in this book, well, more so foreground, the experiences of largely Inuit in some of the places I've been, Inuit community members who are experiencing accelerating uh, accelerate, accelerating and amplified climate effects of global warming and what this means for their experiences of ice in their communities. And sometimes this can be very ambiguous, for example, like in, um, in Lulusat, in Kalalignunat, in Greenland, um, where there's a really important um, glacier, one of the fastest calving glaciers in the world, but it's also become a kind of magnet for a kind of dark tourism uh, coming to experience um, global warming at its most iconic, in a sense, so icebergs calve off the face of this glacier. Um, and of course, it's really important to the local economy that people come there and want to experience and have this proximity to the glacier um, that's called Sermak uh, And in that sense, um, there's a real there's a real ambiguity to the kind of economies that give built up out of ice, accelerated ice loss. And so it sort of spends time in that ambiguity and understands what the ends, you know, what are the, in terms of a means-ends relationship, who benefits, who doesn't, and how ice is implicated there. And then the last sense of ends is, um, in the book, I build up concept of end media. And so these are like experiences not like of the end times, <laughs> but uh, a kind of uh, trying to put forward ice as opening these stories of where uh, you know carbon effects are most manifest. Because of course, because of the albedo effect um, at the poles, global warming's effects are amplified, and they're in a way they kind of are making those locations into a kind of future uh, space of what anticipating for people who live at more southerly latitudes will come in a sense similarly to like vertical uh, spaces like high mountain glaciers etc uh, but in this case it's even more pronounced and so and media are ways of building stories and this is very similar to slow disturbance through different uh my own photographic practice through archival media uh, through a range of yeah different some there's more art actually in this book uh, uh, and so thinking about yeah how and media are stories we can tell that open up for different forms of accountability around um, yeah the effects of global warming and how the carbon subject is really uh, centered by and, and needs to I mean I'm I'm certainly now it's just the book is done more or less the manuscript. Um, is out through Duke and yeah, I'm really hopeful it'll be out in a couple of years, but it's, yeah, something I'm struggling with now is like the, as with any book is a bit of like the, like to, and what I try, I hope at least for slow disturbance is, is not, is, is not, is the sort of, so what question the, what are the stakes and what, what do you do with this? And I think to me, and maybe it's, yeah, it's something I need to, in a sense, like clarify further, but ultimately it's a kind of, um, it's a way of telling the story of global warming that, um, that 
and maybe I'm being a bit cynical, <laughs> doesn't lead towards like a true like uh, sense of urgency around needing to act, uh, but rather it just tells the story and it's a kind of documentary enterprise that makes it available um, for, I hope, like, and this is where this question of readership and publics gets opened up, but I hope it becomes a kind of story that lets, uh, you know, maybe uh, EV community members in Nunavut in Canada see, okay, like, um, there are ways of telling this story that recognize how Southern settler um, uh, harm has been enacted. And it's like, a, it's a kind of documentary enterprise that makes uh, effects that aren't normally understood or pointed out, makes them manifest as what I call these end media and can, yeah, it can really obviously make themselves available to reconstitute and tell another story. But I think um, that's, that's the ambition for the book. So we'll see. <laughs> Uh, but it's really, yes, yeah, and I totally encourage you, Padma, to, to sort of take up a, it really start, started as a kind of like side project for me during my dissertation fieldwork. And um, so, yeah, it's a way of, of giving yourself a kind of outlet to think alongside other concerns that are emerging through your primary primary project, but then have, yeah, have these concerns grow with you and evolve over time. Yeah, that sounds like a super fascinating project, though. I'm really excited for it, and I'm excited to read it. Um, and in the meanwhile, for those listening, I hope you pick up your copy of Slow Disturbance um, and engage more deeply with the book. Um, thank you so much, Rafika. Thanks, Padma. Thanks for initiating this conversation.